is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And Unladies, I am bringing y'all another holiday treat from inside the Unladies room. Earlier this year, I had the pleasure of talking with another Kristen, Kristen Meinzer, podcast royalty host of How to Be Fine with Jolenta Greenberg, as well as the podcast we're going to be talking about this episode, The Daily Fail. And yes, that is a play on The Daily Mail. And if you're thinking, The Daily Mail, that is a horrible, like, ultra-conservative gossip rag, why on earth would we be talking about this on Unladylike for all of its obvious nonsense? The Daily Mail was nevertheless revolutionary when it came to addressing women in a newspaper. Its founder was intent on essentially monetizing women. And Alfred Harmsworth, the Daily Mail founder, was absolutely right in banking on the fact that if you brought in what he called the women's realm into newspapers, that could attract an entire untapped cash cow of advertisers. Its women's page editor back in the World War I era recalled how the men running the Daily Mail, quote, expected women to be interested solely in knitting jumpers, in caring for their complexions, looking after babies, in cooking, in a good murder, and in silly stories about weddings, which when I first read that, I was like, oh, yes, the sexism, shake my fist in the air. And then I was like, wait, but but is that is that just describing me? I mean, I don't know how to knit, but I can crochet and take out the looking after babies part. Like everything else, <laughs> sure, give it to me. I want a good murder. I'll take a silly story about a wedding. And yeah, I mean... If y'all have listened to our episode on adult acne, of course I think about my complexion. And therein lies the contradiction that our second Kristen this episode, Kristen with a K, Kristen Meinzer, has thought a lot about. Hi, Kristen, and welcome back to Unladylike. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me back, Kristen. This is so exciting. I always <laughs> love being on your show. You're the best. Um, also, congratulations. You have a new podcast, new-ish. Yes, you yes. Tell the listeners about the daily fail. Yes. Uh the daily fail is an examination of the world's most read online English language newspaper. I'm not going to say the name of it. We never say the name of this paper. I'm just going to say it rhymes with daily fail, but um, (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Um, But this newspaper is so widely read, and I originally wanted to start this show because I am, as a one of my many hats I wear, I am a professional royal watcher, and this is one of the main sources for information, for stories, for gossip about the royal family. And in my opinion, more often than not, what they're publishing is coming from an angle that is very anti-Megan. It is xenophobic. It is sexist. It is frequently pitting women against women, Megan against Kate, uh, Diana versus Camilla, and so on. And this is really where a lot of people are getting their information. And so much of it, if you just scratch the surface, (laughs) is 
obviously just out there with an agenda. So much of it seems like it's bad for women. And so I wanted to host a podcast that was digging into that, that was laughing at it. And so in every episode, we choose three of the dumbest stories of the week. My co-host, Maura, and I, who is hilarious, by the way, and so smart, we choose three of the dumbest headlines of the week, and then we dissect them and laugh at them, whether they're fear-mongering stories about how perimenopausal symptoms might actually be a sign that you're losing your mind. Not true, by the way. You're not losing your mind. This is just a very normal thing that people go through. Um, Whether it's scare stories about how you're likely to get killed in a hotel room, whether it's stories that are essentially just ageist excuses to make fun of women for not being young anymore. So uh, we look at all of these different stories, we laugh at them, and hopefully we make people feel less alone. People may still read these newspapers and laugh their heads off at these things, but maybe they'll do it thinking a little bit more or feeling some sense of commiseration when they listen to the Daily Fail podcast. Well, let's get technical for a minute, because what what makes a tabloid a tabloid exactly? Well, first, I just want to say what tabloids publish. A lot of people think tabloids are just publications filled with fake news. And that's not necessarily true. A lot of the stories actually are telling the truth. Um, Some of these publications will actually hire genealogists to look back into people's family history. Like, for example, the Daily Mail hired a real legitimate genealogist to dig into Ilaria Baldwin's background, for example, and learned that Ilaria had zero Spanish heritage anywhere (laughs) in her family tree. Um, So it's not that the tabloids publish exclusively false stories, but they do publish sensationalized stories for the most part. The angles they choose tend to be fear-mongering. They tend to imply scandal even when there is no scandal. In some cases, they're mean-spirited. They definitely have a perspective in their stories. As I already mentioned, they also tend to have a lot of photographs, um, a lot of visuals, charts, and so on, but mostly those kinds of, you know, paparazzi shots that uh, we all love to look at, or maybe not all of us love to look at, but I was brought up to enjoy looking at those photos. And then when it comes to the actual physical structure of a tabloid, they were designed to be what we would call half broadsheets. So think of a full newspaper like the Financial Times or the New York Times. Those newspapers are kind of large and unwieldy, right? Mm-hmm. They, you, you really have to like have a full dining room table or something like that to spread them out, read them fully. But a tabloid, more often than not, has historically been designed kind of as uh, halfway between that broadsheet and a magazine. So it's a half broadsheet. It kind of uh, is formatted like a magazine. Usually it's folded on the left-hand side, so you can page through it the same way you would a magazine. It's a little larger in size usually than a magazine, but it's similar to that. And then also, tabloids tend to cover a wide variety of subjects. They are not just going to cover finance news like the Financial Times. A wide range of topics that are aiming to be very entertaining, and they tend to target women. And more tabloid readers are women than men. (laughs) I'm imagining, I don't know if you've heard the term pink it and shrink it. uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Especially with workout clothes or ladies' (laughs) razor blades. Yeah, things like that. (laughs) Exactly. Is 
Are tabloids like do the tabloids have like a little bit of pink it and shrink it in their design because of their targeting of a female readership? <laughs> well, tabloids were really designed with women in mind. And what kind of publications are targeting women more than men? Well, at this time, it was magazines. And when I say at this time, I'm talking 1903. That is when most historians say the first modern tabloid was published. And that was the Daily Mirror. And they very specifically published the Daily Mirror with women in mind. The founder, Alfred Harmsworth, said that he wanted to be a mirror of feminine life. He wanted to make this publication attractive to women. He wanted to reflect women's interests, women's thoughts, women's work, which, full disclosure, women's work in his mind was being a wife and a mother for the most part. Um, so it, it wasn't necessarily what you and I do for a living when he was thinking <laughs> about women's work. Um, but he wanted to make it attractive to women uh, in both content as well as in format, in size, the whole thing was designed for women. Um, I do want to just add here, though, that the Daily Mirror, even though it is credited as the first modern tabloid, Alfred Harmsworth founded another newspaper almost 10 years before that, which we now call a tabloid, but originally wasn't, and that is the Daily Mail. And the Daily Mail had an agenda to also attract women with whole sections just for women. And so... At this point, we call the Daily Mail a tabloid. Back then, only part of it was essentially what we would call a tabloid, but it eventually became a full-on tabloid. So I like to put both of them in that category. I like to think Harmsworth, he was really innovating. He was really thinking of that female readership at the time. A man named Harmsworth creating <laughs> these tabloids feels so on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> So what? tell me a little bit more then about back in the Harmsworth era, what kind of content they were cooking up? Oh, my gosh. There were all the stories that were important to women. Hearth, home, home decorating, fashion, aspirational stories. Uh, Harmsworth and his brother who helped run these publications, they believed that women – loved the fantasy of things they couldn't have. So, you know, that's why they would have these spreads on celebrities and their clothes and so on. Um, but they also wanted to celebrate women for their housewifery and those kinds of things as well. So there would be stories in all of those realms, stories that more or less are kind of the same stories that are in these publications today. But in their effort to do that, they really differentiated their newspapers from other newspapers. First and foremost, by hiring a woman to be the editor. There is somebody named Mary Holworth, not Harmsworth, Holworth, <laughs> uh, who was hired by the Daily Mail to oversee all the women's columns and you know provide material on fashion, on motherhood, and so on. And the Daily Mail also hired who may be the first female war correspondent. There is some debate on whether or not this is true, but Sarah Wilson according to a lot of historians, is the first female war correspondent. She worked for the Daily Mail. She reported during the Second Boer War, which took place in South Africa from 1899 to 1902. Uh, the Daily Mail also did these kinds of offshoot events. So it wasn't just what's happening in the newspaper. They also had this thing that is called the Ideal Home Exhibition, 
as recently as three years ago, I, I know it was still going on. I don't know if it stopped during the pandemic, but I do know that this went on for well over 100 years. And it was essentially a world's fair of home decor, home technology, uh, to entertain women, to sell to women. Like, look at how this vacuum cleaner can change your life. Isn't this incredible? But also that kind of HGTV stuff that still attracts a large female viewership today. Like, look at what this living room looked like before and what it could look like now if you decorate it this way. <laughs> look at what you can do with your small space. And I admit it, I would be totally sucked into that as well. Like, wow. And then, oops, they just got another reader in me because I'm going to the Ideal Home Exhibition. So um, they did these kinds of crossover things where it was both the event and then the newspaper would then write about that event. So there'd be full features about this big event that is really just an advertisement for the newspaper, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it, it makes so much sense. In today's <laughs> era of SpawnCon, like, of course. Oh, yeah, they knew what they were doing. They also um, had agony aunts, what we would call, you know, a dear Prudence, a dear Abby sort of person. And that started in the early 1930s. Both the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail uh, had those agony aunts and received thousands of letters every week that were being sent in. And by many measures, those were the most popular columns in all of these tabloids, which to this day, many tabloids still have these agony aunt columns. And most of them, in my opinion, give terrible advice. But it is fun just to eavesdrop on, you know, what are other people going through right now? Oh, I've been through that. Alternatively, oh, I would never put myself in that position so you can feel superior when you read it. Like, oh, gosh, I would never sleep with my next door neighbor's husband while she's in the next room. I would wait till she left, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's it's fun to read those because it can be a little bit voyeuristic, you know. Um, and then they also had beauty contests. So there would be, you know, a contest where you would submit your photo to be the most beautiful woman in the world. And then the newspaper would send a, an award of merit to everybody who submitted a photo. So even if you didn't win, you would feel like some loyalty to the tabloid because they recognize my merits as a beautiful woman, even if I wasn't <laughs> chosen. They, they see my merit. They see that I'm beautiful. So uh, in their content, in how they interacted with their readership, I think they made some very smart moves. And I, I know that you and I, Kristen, still follow some of these uh, moves today, you know, making sure that we're cultivating a community, not just a customer, making sure that we are reading comments back to our listeners so they can hear their own voices and our stories. These are things the tabloids was were doing 100 years ago. The Most Beautiful Woman in the World contest sent me down a Google rabbit hole. And I was delighted to learn that the winner, like the, um, you know, I guess everybody, everybody got a little, a little ribbon or something, <laughs> but the winner was determined by a beauty adjudication committee. So it's very <laughs> official. And I'm sure it was uh, just a group of older white men smoking cigars in a room. <laughs> um, and the first winner was a 17-year-old named Ivy Close who went on to become a silent film star. They knew what like, they were okay. doing, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I, I was like bracing as I started Googling Ivy Close of like, oh God, I feel like 
I feel like this is not there. It's not going to be. This is a not going to end well. Her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but things ended up okay. It ended up okay. Um, <laughs> so, what were their politics regarding women? Mm, well, those earliest tabloids were and continue to be very, very hard right leaning. Uh, they align themselves with conservative values, with Brexit, with quote traditional family values, with quote traditional womanhood. Um, there is an idealized way to be a woman within a lot of these old school tabloids. And we know what those ways are uh, as far as how we should look. We should be slim. We should be young. We should be fuckable. We should maintain that appearance without looking like we're trying too hard because God forbid, you know, we look like we are being narcissistic or that we got too much work done. So it's a fine line that we should walk, but it's a very conservative idea of womanhood. And that also includes how we should vote and what we should value. There are a lot of alarmist stories in these old school tabloids about trans youth, for example, mm -hmm. about um, people who may be coming in and invading what is right or good about our national values, whether that's in the US or the UK. Um, and by that, I mean, God forbid, immigrants, people who may not be Christians, uh, people who may not be white, although the language is usually more coded around that, not always coded. Let's be real. There was a very, very famous headline uh, in one of these publications that had Meghan Markle on the cover. And the journalist wrote that in the headline, they had a niggling feeling about her. So there's a lot of dog whistle language that's being used. So even if they don't overtly use certain kinds of racist language, they are not hiding their racism, in my opinion, when they're talking about certain kinds of people. Um, I'm saying certain kinds of people in quotes, but I think you know what I mean. And I think the listeners know what I mean when I'm saying that. Um, and this right-leaning view means that what is being celebrated the most, uh, what is being extolled the most is women shouldn't just love focusing on their beauty and their home and their parenthood, but we should bring that to the ballot box or in the early days, we should not vote at all. The <laughs> earliest versions of these publications were uh, very anti, uh, were very opposed to the women's vote. They made up, this is a fun fact, the term suffragette actually came from the tabloids. They made up that term to make fun of women. Look at these suffragettes trying to uh. go into a man's realm and vote. And the women did exactly as we all did with Obamacare, where we're like, oh, yeah, I like the term Obamacare. I'm going to use that. So, <laughs> so they decided to embrace the term suffragettes and in some cases call themselves suffragettes because you can't stop us. We're going to get that vote, which I just oh. love. Yeah, get it, girls. Get that <laughs> vote. Uh, these publications also in the 1920s opposed what was called the flapper vote at the time, and that's women who are left-leaning, women in the Labor Party. So they would have editorials day after day trying to push back against this flapper vote. And so they, they, you know, politically aren't afraid to wade in and position these political 
opinions as if they are really in support of doing womanhood the right way. Um, their opinions are not trying to hold back women. They're really about like, don't you want this kind of traditional womanhood? Right. And do you have any sense at all of how much it's female readership is like swayed by these politics, considering if I end up on the daily fail, (laughs) 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 Um, I'm, I, I'm not going there to look for my political news. I'm going to look at like a a whole ridiculous paparazzi photo gallery that I know that I probably shouldn't be. But <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I do think it's interesting. So many people I know who read these publications, they like you, like I, they see the malarkey and then they just go right past it and, you know, decide to look at the Met Gala red carpet instead. Or they they just decide to read about Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner instead. They really don't want to read the editorials, the politics. Or if they do, they do what I do and they laugh and they think, how could this get published? This is bananas. This is, what? Who greenlit this? What's happening at their pitch meeting? And then, um, But for the most part, that's not where I'm going for my hard news. That's not where I'm going because I want to know about international relations or diplomacy. That's not where I'm turning for that. I am guessing some people do. And for the people who tend to lean that way politically, it's quite affirming to read these stories about uh, how trans youth are actually going to regret it later. Um, Mm -hmm. It probably feels good to them to think, I'm right about the world. The world is black and white. This is a good way for people to be. This is a bad way for people to be. Because there's a lot of that black-white thinking as well in these tabloids. Lots of binaries between villains and heroes. Lots of binary between right and wrong, between pretty and ugly, and so on. I mean, it is incredible. The Daily Beep (laughs) is, is, what did you say, the stat of the most read English language news site in the world? That's wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And I do just want to say, not in defense of tabloids, but just to be factual here, because your show has a lot of facts. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they really get things right. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they have actually uncovered news that is useful. Um, Not always. Sometimes they have completely impinged on and made difficult police investigations. Sometimes they have hurt people. Sometimes they have invaded privacy. They have absolutely done things that uh, would be called criminal and have had to go to court over their actions, some of these tabloids. But in some cases, they've actually done good things as well. So for example, when Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered and um, there was the court case over that and we all know the prime suspect was O.J. Simpson and one of the notable things that happened there in that case was that there were bloody footprints in size 12 Bruno Mogli shoes that were on the site of the murders and there are only 299 pairs of Bruno Mogli size 12 shoes at that point that had ever been sold. And Mm -hmm. the National Enquirer found out that O.J. Simpson was one of the people who had bought those shoes. And O.J. Simpson in court said, oh, I would never wear those. Those are ugly. But the National Enquirer actually published photographs for many months before the murders 
showing him wearing those shoes. And so um, in some cases, they have actually come forward and had information or uncovered stories that other people haven't. They also were the ones who revealed John Edwards was having an extramarital affair. And just, you know, I believe people should sleep with whoever they want to. This isn't about slut shaming. Sleep with who you want to. (laughs) But he was indicted later by a federal grand jury on six felony charges for violating multiple federal campaign contribution laws because he was paying to cover up that affair he was having. So it's one thing to sleep around. It's quite another to break campaign contribution laws. And so the National Enquirer was part of that too. What was their motivation in each of those cases? Was it to, you know, point fingers at a black man? Maybe. Was it to sink the campaign of a left-leaning politician? Probably. Um, But I still think what they did there was the right thing in both of those cases, uncovering those stories. And I also have to give a shout out to In Touch magazine here. In Touch is technically closer to a celebrity gossip magazine than a real tabloid. But In Touch, they were the first ones to bring the story of Josh Duggar's acts of molestation to the public eye. And that sunk the entire, you know, 19 kids and counting universe. There was a spinoff show for quite a while, but Josh Duggar was no longer a reality TV star after that. And in my opinion, that's a good thing. So once in a while, the tabloids do good things. (laughs) I do want to, I should though, um, just to balance this out, point out some of the bad things they've done too, right? Okay. Yeah. So I already mentioned that they have interfered with police investigations. The biggest, most notable one was in 2002. There was this young schoolgirl in the UK named Millie Dowler. And the News of the World journalist decided to hack her phone to try and hear like voice messages or what had happened in the days leading up to her disappearance. And in hacking her phone, um, they were interfering with the investigation, obviously, and invading privacy. But then they took it further uh, by actually deleting certain messages so they could create more room in her voicemail box for other messages coming in from forlorn family and friends like, Millie, are you okay? I'm trying to get through to you so that they would have more material to print. Oh, forlorn family Mm -hmm. member says this. And so they were interfering with the investigation. They were confusing the police who were investigating it, thinking like, she must be alive because she's deleting messages and opening up room on her phone. So the police thought she was alive still. And then at the same time, all of those deleted messages could have been evidence and they don't exist anymore. They're completely gone. So that's something that News of the World did. That's definitely a worst case scenario. Um, But also, there are other worst case scenarios. So do you know about this thing called catch and kill, Kristen? I did listen to an audiobook by one Ronan Farrow of the Catch and Kill. <laughs> All right. So Catch and Kill is when a newspaper buys exclusive rights to a story from an individual. So let's say I was going to say, Kristen, I want you to tell me the exclusive story of what happened at that workplace. You're going to tell me everything. 
I'm going to have you sign this contract. It's exclusive. You can't take the story anywhere else. I'm going to pay you all this money. It will never be anywhere else. We get the world exclusive. And then I give you the money. You give me the story. And then I never publish the story. And it turns out that your old employer, maybe I'm working in cahoots with them. Maybe I'm trying to cover up certain stories. And this is a practice the National Enquirer has used over and over and over again. The reason Ronan Farrow uses that term is because the National Enquirer used it extensively with Harvey Weinstein, for mm-hmm. example, and his victims. Oh, sure. Uh, we'd love to hear your exclusive story of what happened between you and Harvey Weinstein. Let's sign this exclusive contract. All right, we never published it. Isn't that convenient? It can never come out into the world because otherwise you're breaking contract law. And um, the National Enquirer did that not just with Harvey Weinstein, but also did it with Donald Trump, with other notable people. So um, just to be clear here, I I am not trying to defend the tabloids in any way (laughs) when I say that they have actually done good things. They've done terrible things too, absolutely terrible things. But I do think that it's it's interesting to point out that occasionally that they do get it right as well. Do you know if Catch and Kill is exclusive to the National Enquirer or is it sort of a tabloid-wide practice? <sighs> It's not just the National Enquirer that does it, but they are the ones who do it most famously and most extensively. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. How do you sort of suss out like the, how it all shakes out? Like, does the good outweigh the bad? What do you think? Well, I try to look at the bigger picture here because tabloids don't just exist in a vacuum. They are part of a bigger world of society, of culture, of entertainment. And that ecosystem that they exist in also includes reality shows. Almost every dating reality Mm. show is about perpetuating traditional family values and the ultimate goal that a woman should be with a man. And that's something a woman should either want because she is self-actualized that way. And by fighting off other women to get to that one bachelor, she is the most desirable. Alternatively, if she is the bachelorette herself, that she is so desirable that all these men are fighting for her. Um, HGTV, the idea of hearth and home being the ultimate achievement, it is everywhere. Made-for-TV holiday movies. I am naming off things, by the way, that I really enjoy consuming. I love watching <laughs> Love is Blind. I love watching HGTV. I love made-for-TV holiday movies. And within all of these ecosystems, there is both good and bad. They employ thousands, if not millions of women behind the scenes working on all of these projects as writers, as actors. In a lot of cases, these kinds of media give women more screen time and more visibility than more uh, highbrow press or more highbrow media. In a lot of the most expensive media out there, let's say Marvel movies, for example, women have almost no speaking lines. They never get to be main characters. I shouldn't say never, but rarely. Uh, We actually get a lot more coverage and a lot more space in these kinds of lower brow media, this lower brow media, which 
is both good and bad. I'm not going to say it's 100% bad because I don't think it is. And I also think there's something to be said just for having fun. Even if we know something's terrible, like I love junk food. Am I going to like stop eating junk food all the time because it's not healthy? No, I'm, I'm going to enjoy some of it here and there. And I feel the same way about these tabloids. I feel the same way about, you know, all of the media that is frequently dismissed and isn't going to win any awards. A lot of the times it just is fun. I mean, you are speaking to my all too deep knowledge uh, and consumption of Bravo reality television. Oh, so. <laughs> exactly. I put that all in the same universe. And not surprisingly, the people in the Bravo universe, to a great extent, occupy a huge percentage of the pages in these tabloids. It's so true. It It, it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it's cross-pollination. And the people on these reality shows are usually the ones who want the most exposure and are the least likely to sue for being in the pages as well. So they love the exposure. We love reading the crap that they're up to. <laughs> Everybody wins, right? Every, everybody wins, except maybe for Meghan Markle. Sadly, yes. That's true. Very, very sadly. <laughs> Well, Kristen, is there anything else about tabloids or the daily fail that you want to make sure listeners know? Well, I just, let's see here. Well, I just hope everyone takes a moment to listen to the daily fail and hopefully it'll bring you a little bit of joy. It will, if you're somebody who sometimes shakes your fist at the sky when you see these headlines, maybe you'll feel vilified. And maybe, I I hope, maybe you'll come away from it with a slightly more nuanced opinion of tabloids because they're not just good and they're not just bad. Okay, and ladies, I would love to hear from y'all. Have you ever felt feminist guilt or conflict over having a, an appetite maybe for some garbage tabloid or even the Daily Mail itself? Me personally, I, I'm, I rarely visit the Daily Mail's website, but it's also because I know that once I'm on there, it, it's hard to pull myself off because, I mean, those headlines, those headlines are so are so completely absurd. Thank you so much to Kristen Meinzer for coming and talking to me. Go listen to The Daily Fail. Go listen to her other podcast, How to Be Fine. And if you would like to make Unladylike's holidays a little bit brighter, support us on Patreon. And by us, I mean me. Because Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, you have been, this is your third time, I believe, on Unladylike. So I'm not going to ask you for a third time what the <laughs> most unladylike thing is about you. But I am going to ask, what is the most unladylike thing about tabloids? Ooh, that is a good question. That is a really good question. I think maybe the most unladylike thing about the tabloids 
is this contradiction that ladies are about hearth and home and womanhood, bump watch, baby watch, all of these things are what make women most interesting. Is she pretty? Is she young? Is she fuckable? Does she have a bump? All of these things. Supposedly, these are the things that make women most interesting and the best members of society in the tabloid universe, right? And yet, if you peel back the layers, the tabloids are really of the belief that women hold the power and hold the money. They are the ones who are going to do the most buying. They were created partly because the founders of tabloids realized we should be advertising directly to women. Most of the disposable household income around the world, in the Western world at least, is in women's hands. Women are the one buying. Women are the ones buying the toiletries, the cleaning products, the groceries, the furniture. Women are making all of these decisions with money. Women are spending money every single week in a way that men aren't. Uh, the National Enquirer actually pioneered the idea of selling tabloids in the grocery store because they knew women had to be in the grocery store multiple times a week anyway. So this is a way for us to sell to women. So even though they want ladies to be ladies, they also want ladies to be the holder of the purse strings and to spend that sweet money on them. So I think that is both ladylike and unladylike. Ah, uh, I love that.